day, listeners. My name is Natalie Sessions, and I'm one of the senior nutritionists at ENN. And today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to two youth advocates in a relation to our latest edition of Field Exchange, Issue 66, a special edition on school-aged children and adolescent nutrition. I'm delighted to speak to Webster Makombe, who is a global youth advocate for nutrition with the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement and an Act for Food, Act for Change core group member and campaign leader and ambassador for Zimbabwe, as well as Tasha Makaya-Kora, who is a board member of Bite Back 2030. Both Tasha and Webster were part of our advisory group for this edition, and we are delighted to hear their reflections on some of the articles published and what the priorities should be for adolescent and school-aged children's nutrition. So starting perhaps with you, Webster, if you could just say how you got to be involved in Field Exchange Issue 66, our special edition on adolescents and school-aged children nutrition. Okay, so my involvement came after we did a, a webinar on adolescent nutrition with the Emergency Nutrition Network. And I was just talking about the importance of adolescent nutrition and how, you know, the adolescent stage is the second window of opportunity for young people and also just seeing window for opportunity to do away with the whole issue of malnutrition. Because if young people eat right, they're going to turn into better adults. If they turn into better adults, that means they're healthy parents and they'll give birth to healthier babies. So it's just generally talking about the importance of adolescent nutrition and why we should focus on adolescent nutrition and use it to do away with malnutrition. So that's just how I got engaged in six, 66 and my role was on the advisory group and was just highlighting the issues from a youth perspective. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Webster. And Tasha, I know you're also involved in the strategic advisory group, but maybe you can say a bit more about how you came to be part of this group. Yeah, no, honestly, similar story to website. Previously taken part in a emergency nutrition network event and similar talks were being had as well on the importance of nutrition and what are some of those obstacles that young people face when it comes to, you know, deciding to eat healthier, whether that's accessibility or affordability. And just that conversation, out of that conversation, at least, there was a really stark difference in terms of some of the issues that people face when it comes to being healthy. For example, if you're someone from the UK, you face a lot more different issues or different obstacles or challenges, at least, compared to somebody else who's in India or somebody else who's in South America. So it was just a really good conversation to kind of just address some of the different systematic issues issues that we have within the food industry and yeah out of that I got approached to join the advisory group and that's been a really exciting opportunity. Brilliant thanks so much Tasha and I know both of your input in the strategic advisory group has been so important and you know one of the big learnings that we try and highlight within FIC 66 is around youth having an active role within the projects and programs that we create that are focused on targeting school-aged children and adolescents. And so it was so brilliant to get your input and thoughts as we created this edition. Just so if I could start with our first question for you, and maybe Tasha, to mix things up, if I can start with you. In your opinion, what is the biggest nutritional problem faced by school-aged children and adolescents today? What a question to kickstart the session. Well, I think there's a few things, but I'll try and keep them as short as possible. 
So the first thing for me is accessibility, right? And accessibility to me means like how accessible is your healthy food, your healthy options. And a lot of young people in the UK, at least, they live in food deserts. And essentially food deserts are areas or region within the country where it's very difficult for you to get fresh fruit and vegetable. So perhaps you don't have a local market near you or you don't have a local supermarket near you. And so you have to rely perhaps on a corner store. And we know that convenience stores, they can be a lot more expensive compared to like your supermarket. And so that could be somebody who lives in a food desert who finds it difficult to have access to food that is healthy and nutritious. Or perhaps you also live on a high street that's completely plagued with fast food and junk food options. Again, there isn't much options in terms of what you can eat. You pretty much have the same padlet across, you know, five, six, seven different stores. And so for me, accessibility, I think is definitely one obstacle that school-aged children and adolescents face today. And also affordability, right? I think it would be ignorant for us to think that, you know, young people, we're, you know, financially literate, we make really good decisions that aren't influenced at all by the cost of things. But actually, that is not true. We know that, you know, as a school-aged child, when I was in school, what I bought was like, you know, your three-for-one priced, you know, sweets, chocolates, cookies, you know, those snacks. I was not about to spend the same amount on like a little bowl of salad. And so that often influenced what I could get. Even after school, I could get six wings and chips for like two pounds. I was not going to get the same hearty meal at Tesco's or another supermarket. And so like price really does influence what you eat. So yeah, I think accessibility and affordability play a huge role in terms of being the biggest nutritional problems that, you know, school-age children and adolescents face. Brilliant. Thanks so much. And those reflections around accessibility and affordability, I think, are so true. Webster, from your side and your context, do you have anything to add on to Tasha's points around the biggest nutritional problems faced by school-aged children and adolescents today? Well, I think the points that Tasha pointed out are really like what children face and adolescents face. But I would just like to reiterate and like give an example of what availability is like one major issue whereby I find like some food items cannot be found in certain, you know, in certain parts of town. And then in the other parts of town in which they are found, they are very expensive. And the other issue has to do with, you know, the media and how food, how our food culture, our food systems are portrayed through the media, uh, such as you know, like the newspapers, the magazines, or the television. It then gives the school children and adolescents the idea that, you know, eating the junk food or eating fast food or stuff like that is the way to go and is how they must lead their lives. Where is, you know, fruits and vegetables are shown upon, hearty meals are not shown in television commercials or advertised as much as junk food is advertised. So I think that is one of the major problems that adolescents and school-going children face. And even given the fact that, you know, these school-going children spend most of their time in school, that means that the morning they just eat breakfast at home and then they eat their break time at school, they eat their lunch at school and sometimes even eat later in the day whilst worked at school. So you find that even like here in Zimbabwe, there are what we call anagogo. These are like uh, older women or just women in general or men who sell, you know, snacks around the school areas. And you find that most of the snacks that the school, uh, that they sell around the school areas are not healthy foods. They're usually sweets, biscuits or any of those kind of food that is definitely not fruits and vegetables. So I feel that's one of the major problems that we face. That is so true. And the role of media is just so impactful and not just school and adolescence. It influences all of our choices, doesn't it, really? 
I guess then the next question, and maybe coming back to you, Tasha, what should governments do as a priority to improve the nutrition of school-aged children and adolescents? Do you have any thoughts and reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, so taxes on unhealthy food over the last couple of years have become, you know, increasingly popular across the whole globe. So we know we have the sugar tax on like food that are high in sugar and drinks that are high in sugar. I mean, that's a great starting point. But I also think a complementary approach would be to like tax would be to subsidize healthy foods. And again, this would kind of address the earlier problem that I highlighted in terms of affordability, right? If the government can find a way to subsidize healthy options, make them more affordable alongside taxing unhealthy options, it just means that people, we're cultivating an environment where it's easier to be healthier and people are able to make better choices because you'll find that you're buying the healthy options, not because, you know, they're healthy per se, but rather it's the more affordable option in compared to now where people are buying, you know, mostly some people are buying unhealthy options, not because, you know, they love unhealthy food, but rather it's the more affordable option. So for me, it's just about flipping the status quo and having a complementary approach to taxing sugar drinks, which is subsidizing healthy food options. Yeah, that's so important. And Webster, just for you to add on there, what are your thoughts around government's priorities and how they can improve the nutrition of school-aged children and adolescents? Well, I think one of the major initiatives that government should take is the school feeding programs. Like here in Zimbabwe, government does take, you know, part in the school feeding programs with the help of UN agencies and other, you know, NGOs who chip in and help the government actually budgets and sets aside money for the school feeding programs. But then what then would need to be done would be to make sure that those school feeding programs are giving children uh, healthy foods and healthy diets. So once that's done, it only does not help by actually making sure that kids are full and healthy during class, but also it, it, it changes their eating habits and, you know, and their feeding patterns. Because definitely if a child gets to eat properly a balanced diet and gets to eat salads and fruits at school, definitely at home, they would also want to do the same. And if they're given, you know, proper meals at school, there'll be no need for them to go and buy, you know, those sweets and janky food from Vanagogo outside. So I think that's one of the major problems that government should take to make sure that, you know, the nutritional food for the school-going children and adolescents is changed. And also the other issue, like, for example, like earlier on this month, I was part of this program that's spearheaded by the First Lady, which is called the Mukota Munanga program, whereby she's just talking about the importance of our cultural heritage as Zimbabweans. And one of the components of that program, which I was adding as part of the University of Zimbabwe team, was the traditional cuisine program. So it's like school-aged children, I get taught about traditional cuisines and plant-based diets and eating healthy and all. That's one of the great things that government can take to make sure that, you know, they change the measures and the tools around nutrition, particularly among school-grained children and adolescents. Oh, thanks, Webster. And that sounds like a really interesting program. And I think you've reflected there around the importance of schools as a platform for engaging school-aged children and adolescents. And it reminds me of the podcast that I had the privilege of 
doing today for Fix 66 with Amanda from the Ministry of Health in Uganda. And we were talking about school feeding programs and how in Uganda schools have been closed for two years almost because of COVID and how much that has really affected targeting school-age children and adolescents. And I was wondering if either of you had any reflections on just how COVID has shifted programming for school-age children and adolescents. I actually wrote a blog about this. Like it's on the Save the Children website sometime in 2020. It's called Eating Away COVID-19. And in that blog, I was just essentially talking about the importance, you know, of nutrition and food in the fight against COVID-19. That, you know, if you eat well, since COVID-19 attacks the immune system of an individual. So if you eat well, you then become healthy. It is affected due to COVID-19. Most schools have been closed. That meant shutting down the school feeding programs and that had an adverse effect especially on the kids who certainly rely on school because you understand they are they are such kids you know who come to school because they would want to eat at school yeah so since schools have been closing because of lockdown and all they don't eat much at home and the closure of schools had an adverse effect on them since they relied heavily on the school feeding programs yeah so that's also one of the major challenges that i raised as being brought about by the COVID 19 Brilliant. And Tasha, any thoughts and reflections on your side? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting in terms of the impact that COVID has had on young people and children's access to like nutritious food. Similar to the what you've outlined about Uganda, last year, right back, we ran a campaign asking for the government to extend free school meals for children that were eligible over the Easter, May and summer holiday. And that's because we recognise that for a lot of kids, especially the 1.4 million children who are eligible for free school meals, that one lunch meal is probably the most nutritious meal that they have of the whole entire day. It's either kids will go without breakfast. Or if they don't, it's like it's not a very you know nutritious breakfast, nutritious meal. And similar for dinner times, it's either they don't have dinner at all or it's not good quality food. And so we asked the government to realize that, listen, for a lot of kids, this one meal means a lot to them. And so us being able to provide over the Eastern May and summer holidays is really, really important because like I said, a lot of children are very dependent on this one meal. So definitely to both points that you guys have made and how COVID has really impacted kids' you know, accessibility to nutritious food and how governments should be looking to support kids um, that are most vulnerable within society, especially during these like challenging times. So Webster, maybe to shift things up, you can answer the next question. What sort of health and nutrition programs would you like to see provided for school-aged children and adolescents? I know you started mentioning one program there in your previous answer, but maybe you can share a bit more about the types of programs that would be best. For starters, I think I need to mention that my work getting involved in nutrition advocacy and all actually started when I was a school-aged brain tutor myself. I was part of a pilot project by the Scaling Up Nutrition Office here in Zimbabwe. And I think it was UNICEF at the time and the Junior Parliament of Zimbabwe. I was a junior parliamentarian at the time. And they came and took to us as junior parliamentarians about the importance, you know, of uh, nutrition, the importance of breastfeeding children during the first thousand days, 
importance of adolescent nutrition and all. So I think all my nutrition endeavors, all, all the work that I have done as a youth advocate for nutrition have been rooted around that, like with the understanding that, you know, school children need to be taught about the importance of this thing from a very young age. Another program that I think is very important is actually setting up nutrition clubs at schools like we have done here in Zimbabwe. With my work with the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement Office here in Zimbabwe, we have set up what we call the nutrition clubs at school. So what essentially these are is just like, a bunch of school, high scholars come together and then they discuss about nutrition. And then from time to time, we hold cooking demonstrations. From time to time, we hold workshops. And sometimes about, you know, the importance of nutrition in the economy. Sometimes we talk about the importance of nutrition in the body and stuff like that. So even like with, um, I think I remember like from 2019 and 2020, with some of the these children from the nutrition clubs, we actually went to parliament when they were presenting their budget statements so that they would just share their thoughts on why, you know, government should fund more nutrition initiatives in, in their planning. So that's also one school initiative that I think is very important. And another one which I think is very important and should be done by government is what, is what the Zimbabwean government has done. It has made agriculture a mandatory subject in schools, both in primary school and, and in high school. So that means every student in Zimbabwe needs to learn when they go to school, they'll learn, they'll learn agriculture as a subject. So what this essentially means that they'll learn about the importance of the planet, they'll learn about the importance of farming correctly, they'll learn about the relationship between the planet and the people. And most important of all, they'll learn that, you know, we get off food from the farming and get and that food is what makes up the body. So essentially, to then learn, you know, of how to take their care of their bodies, how to eat right, how to treat the planet right. So I think there's just some of the few government projects that they need to be initiated by governments or, you know, even by private entities or NGOs or UN agencies, or even volunteers like myself can actually go into the schools and try and initiate such programs. Wow, thanks Webster. And that is really fascinating to hear about the agriculture being taught in schools because I think growing up in cities, certainly from myself, we're so disconnected from where our food actually comes from and the opportunity to learn about that from an early age is fantastic. And just as a plug about the junior parliamentarians in Zimbabwe, we actually have an article about that in Vic 66. And it is really interesting to hear about that mechanism because it's quite exciting. And I know I found that article really fascinating. Tasha, just over to you on the sorts of health and nutrition programs you would like to see. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So building on Webster's point about nutrition clubs in school, I think that is fantastic. Definitely something that I didn't have access to in school. And I think it's so, so important because last year over the lockdown, back back, we launched a series. It was called Cook with Jack. Essentially, it was one of the chefs from Jamie Oliver's cookery school. And he volunteered to teach kids and anyone else who, you know, happened to be free around about lunchtime and wanted to join a YouTube live video, teach everyone how to cook easy lunches from a shopping list that would fall within a 15 pounds weekly free school meals budget at like you know your national mid-range supermarket and that was a really good success because I think a lot of people didn't realize how easy it is or it can be to make food that is healthy that is nutritious at a low cost and often with stuff that you already have within your cupboards already so that was really really good so I hope like governments would look into making that like a permanent feature within the curriculum 
I know we have like design and technology lessons and occasionally you might have a, a food tech session where you might learn how to cook, you know, have a crumble and that sort of thing, but really make it an integral part of the curriculum, teaching kids, how do you, you know, maintain and keep a balanced diet as well? Because I think there are a lot of misconceptions in terms of what is a healthy diet. We often think it's exclusively all your fruit and veg, but actually you can incorporate your favorite snacks and treats as part of that balanced diet, which I think is really, really important. Also. Another part of that would be how to navigate the food system and like the food environment. And what I mean by that is we often go to supermarkets, we buy what we buy and we pop it in the shopping bag and we keep it stepping. But how do we understand nutrition labels? How do we read the nutrition labels? What does it actually mean? Right. I know we have, at least in the UK, we have the traffic light system. We can kind of tell you, you know, how healthy that food is. But they can be often really misleading, right? They can be quite tricky to navigate. So having that understanding of how do you navigate your food environment can be an important part of nutrition clubs. I think it's a great start. Brilliant. Thanks, Tasha. And you mentioned the traffic light system. And just for people who aren't so familiar with the British context, if you could maybe describe a bit more about what that is, just briefly. Of course. So the traffic light system is essentially, it's not a legal requirement for companies to place on their products, but a lot of companies do it so that their items look healthier. And what it is essentially is a traffic light on a product and it will tell you the amount of fat, salt, sugar within that item If all for those separate categories. If it's green, it means it's healthy. If it's orange, it means it's a little bit, you know, it's good, but it's not great. And then if it's red, it means that it's got a lot of that particular nutrient in there. So you often want to try and buy food that are, you know, as green as possible. Just moving on to our next question and is around how can we make health and nutrition programs more accessible and appealing to adolescents? And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Maybe Webster, we can start with you again. That would be good to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I think you, uh, what, what we can do is just like, for starters, just to make sure that our content is not technical. Because the last thing a young person would want to hear is like when they come and ask you about, we'll say like dietary specifics or whatever, or the importance of nutrition in their body or how food works in their body. They would want you to be scientific or stuff like that. So I think one of the first things that we need to do is like youth organization or youth programs or what youth facilitators or coordinators is to do. Just make sure that the content is not technical and is youth friendly. By youth friendly, I just mean it's like in, it's in less heavy, in air quotes, it's in less heavy terms. It's in terms that young people can easily and, you know, can easily understand and it's relatable. And also one thing that I think is very important is just doing activities or just engaging with young people, you know, in these nutrition spaces, but in a more like friendly manner, how can I put this? And let me like give you for example of what I'm doing in Zimbabwe right now, like with Extra Food Day Change, this December, I'm planning what I'm going to call the Napi Tapi Food Festival. So Napi Tapi is just a shorter word, which means thing are looking good, right? So the Napi Tapi Food Festival is just going to be a festival where they're going to come corporates that deal in the food industry. They're going to be the Ministry of Health. They're going to be academics, they're going to be startups. There's going to be like this wide range of people that work in the nutrition sphere, right? But then also, most importantly, there's going to be food and music. So what's going to happen is that like, young people just be, and then they'll be listening to the music and they having these corporates and academics just telling them all the importance of nutrition and all, but, you know, in a youth-friendly space. So I think that's one of the things that we just like need to do, even like when you're using social media 
like Instagram or just having like Instagram lives or Twitter polls that just ask us, you know, fun and youth-friendly questions so that young people can get more and more engaged in those food issues. Thanks, Webster. And that sounds really interesting. And Tasha, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about how to make programs more accessible and appealing. Yeah, just to build on Webster's point about language, I find that whenever we're talking about health or the food system, we have our own jargon, our own linguistics that we use to describe the current food system, to describe different, you know, processes and strategies, etc. And I think, you know, it's important for us to be accurate. So hence why it's important for us to use that kind of those terms. But I think for your school-age children, for your adolescents, I think making the conversation as digestible as possible is very, very important. And so making language as simple as possible will definitely help young people's engagement when it comes to setting programs on health and nutrition, getting them involved in their local community, food system transformation, whatever it is, if we make it accessible because it is easy to understand, I think that can be, you know, a first step. But also, like Webster said, making the programs or whatever we're doing as appealing as possible. And so that means using the technology that young people use. So social media, we're talking about Instagram and TikTok and all of these kind of things that make our engagement exciting, I think is definitely another way that we can improve young people's engagement. Lastly, do you think that school age children and adolescents have control over their own nutritional choices? And if not, what influences their choices and what can be done to improve them having more control over their choices? I think school going children and adolescents do not have any influences over their meals or what they eat. Well, for status in a home setup, I don't think they do. Was like, give me, name, give me like an example, like in a home setup, like a home that I grew up in. My mom was the one who cooks. So he said that you eat what's on the table or you don't. So in that scenario, I mean, like young people, adolescents, and school children don't like essentially have the power to determine. You know, I, I know all these things like differ with culture and all, but like in the culture that I grew up in, you know, you eat whatever is on the table, what the family has provided for you. You don't have any right to say, oh no, I don't eat this. Oh no, you know, stuff like that. That's for in the home setup. And then in the school setup, I think school students and adolescents somewhat have influences. Like in most cases, if they don't have a packed lunchbox, they will have money, which they'll then use to go to the school. Either it can be a school kiosk or a tax shop where they can go buy something. So in that instance, they would then have like in, an influence on what they buy. But then in most cases, that influence is not like completely their own. As I mentioned earlier, of the issue of media. So you find that like, say like school grandchildren, like I can give you an example of myself when I was, you know, and in primary school, I still remember my favorite co- commercial was a commercial about Simba chips. There's this snacks that are called uh, potato snacks that are called Simba chips. That's what I would go and buy at the touch shop all the time because that's what I saw on the television. And that's what I saw everyone buying. And that was the goal to get snack for, for everyone. So I think those circumstances, or even though they have money to go and buy, the choice won't be their own. They'll, uh, in most cases, be influenced by the media or the TV commercials. And what now I think should be done is to teach young people, especially from a home setup, teach them the importance of eating right. When you give your child money, when they're heading off to school, just tell them, you know, you need to buy maybe an orange, 
need to buy a banana, use your money wisely, don't buy sweets, don't buy, you know, sissy drinks. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the role of, you know, CSOs and NGOs, they should also come and engage these young people and talk to them about the importance of eating right and giving them examples of how to eat right, which in most cases includes uh, buying fruits and vegetables and just eating plant-based. Or um, when you're eating meat, at least eat meat that's not fatty and all. So I think that's just how best we can deal with that issue. But I definitely believe that squash children and young people in most cases do not have an influence on what they eat or consume. Great. Thanks so much, Webster. And just on the last question around school-age children and adolescents having control over their choices and decisions, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that and what advice you could give around how they can mitigate or how we in the nutrition community can help mitigate and improve their level of choice and control. Yeah, I mean, like Webster pretty much, you know, takes some of like the biggest influences within the food system in terms of like what we eat. So yeah, definitely social media. And I think what's quite new about social media is the role that influencers play. Right. So when you see your favorite Instagram or your favorite YouTuber promoting this particular item, product, whether it's in fashion, beauty, food, gaming, whatever it is, let's not forget how influential that can be. And so I think finding a way that we can hold these influencers accountable for what they're promoting, making them realize that actually this is more than just, you know, you making money. This is more than you just influencing one or two people. You're influencing a whole generation in terms of what other kind of consumer choices that we are making. So I think that's quite interesting about social media. And Webster really had a great example about the power of advertising. Companies do not spend the millions that they do for the sake of it, right? They spend the money they do because they know advertising works. Once I've seen it on TV, once I've seen it in a newspaper, on a billboard, all of these are subliminal messages that we're taking in that ultimately influences what I decide to eat when I get to my favorite restaurant. And so finding a way that we can well, two things, either reduce school age children and adolescents exposure to junk food advertising, but also looking for ways that we can replace these unhealthy food adverts with the healthier food options. And Tasha, those were all our planned questions, but I was wondering if there was anything you'd like to leave our listeners with and what is the one takeaway from this edition that you think is really important that if it could stay with listeners, you think that that would be powerful? Oh my goodness, where do I begin? I think the one thing for me is to realize that the food system is such a big, big, big system, right? And there's so many different parts to it. It's not just about, you know, advertising. It's not about, you know, uh, price promotions on unhealthy foods. It's also got to do with production and manufacturing and so many different parts that we can all find an area within the food system that we are passionate about and want to evoke change. And I think that to me is so powerful because it basically means that there's no excuse for anyone to not want to get involved to not want to, you know, take part in the food system transformations that are taking place. It's really just about finding what is it that interests you? What is it about the food system that makes you angry, that you absolutely cannot stand and think about how can I mobilize, get involved, get my friends and peers and community involved and try and tackle that issue? Because essentially, if we all focus on these little bits together, we can 
absolutely make huge differences and changes within the system. So important. So it really has been such a privilege to speak to you today, Tasha and Webster. Thank you so much for making the time. Just fascinating to hear your reflections and your thoughts on our field exchange issue 66. Of course, I had fun. Thank you for listening. You can read more about our special issue of Fields Exchange on the nutrition of adolescents and school-aged children on ENN's website.